<clears throat> so I want to introduce you to someone that, um, I don't know, maybe some of you have heard of, but I imagine most of you have not. Um, a person whose name you are absolutely going to remember from uh, today until the end of your life. A man named Giancomo Paolo Giovanni Battista della Cisa. Um, I'm so sorry for slaughtering the Italian pronunciation. I'm looking at you, Lisa. <laughs> um, if that's too hard to remember, he was more commonly known as uh, Pope Benedict the Fifteenth. Now, Pope Benedict had this um, unique challenge of being of uh, being elected pope after having only been a cardinal for three months. Now, for those of you not familiar with the way the Catholic Church works, this is not a bird. This is like the second in command to the pope. Normally, you have to serve as a cardinal for a very long time before you are able to uh, ascend to the popehood. But there was this unique situation happening in Europe at the time. Um, World War I had just broken out. The first world war, the war to end all wars, the greatest war that had ever been fought, nations in Europe destroying each other with modern weapons, awful, awful weapons. And then uh, about a month after the beginning of the war, the Pope died. So can you imagine coming together in that room with all of those cardinals deciding who's the next Pope and everyone going, not it, I'm not doing it. <laughs> No, 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 no. I'll be the next pope. I'm not doing it this time. But this guy, Giancomo Paolo Giovanni Battista de Acisa, he said, yes, I will do this. He had been a lawyer before he had been a priest, and so they thought, hey, here's a guy who knows how to negotiate. Maybe he can negotiate peace in Europe. So he set about doing that. He set about trying to fix what he called the suicide of Europe. Because... Surely the Pope of all people could be the one to negotiate peace because after all, basically all of these nations that were at war with each other, with aside, aside from the Ottomans, were Christian nations. Um, and I mean, if you take out Great Britain and Germany, they were all Catholic nations. So surely the Pope of all people could be the one to broker peace. So he devoted his life to brokering peace between these nations. But every time he'd sit down at the table with a world leader, they would accuse him of siding with the others against them. Everyone imagined that Pope Benedict was on the other person's side and not on theirs. So he drafted a seven-point plan for peace in Europe. It was a revolutionary document. It called for a clean slate, that there would be no war restitution. No one would have to pay for the damage that was caused. Everyone would put down their weapons and walk away. Now, this kind of thing probably made a lot of sense to a man who'd spent his life with the teachings of Jesus, you know, with all of the forgiveness and um, reconciliation and the debt forgiveness and all that stuff that makes sense to somebody who's used to studying the Bible, but the generals and emperors and kings and presidents all said he was crazy. Actually, Woodrow Wilson actually said publicly that it was nothing but naive, wishful thinking and would never work. But on a side note, after the war, Woodrow Wilson's own 14-point plan totally uh, 
plagiarized this uh, the, the the Pope's plan and never gave him credit. But this is not a day for ragging on Woodrow Wilson. That'll be a different sermon, I'm sure. <laughs> but despite the fact that every single one of his peacemaking efforts was just met with rejection and people accusing him of being a troublemaker for the other side, he never stopped working. He negotiated POD, uh, POW exchanges. He actually uh, got both sides to agree that if a man had more than two children, he could only be held in captivity for a year and a half and then had to be sent home to his family to take care of his children. Right? He negotiated the safe migration of 20,000 civilians from occupied territories into uh, safer lands. He negotiated the release of 29,000 prisoners who had suffered lung damage from the chemical warfare that had been happening. I mean, the guy went so far as to get both sides to agree to let prisoners of war have Sundays and holidays off from their prisoner of war duties so that they could do church and stuff. And since information was slow back then, he set up a department in the Vatican to track the location of every single prisoner of war in Europe and was kind of became a, uh, a mail hub for people at home who didn't know where their loved ones were. He would negotiate uh, letters to and from the POW camps, 700,000 pieces of mail in those four years went through the Vatican because the countries couldn't get their act together. And so in addition to a massive war fought with awful technology, that was the most brutal war of the 20th century, the world also suffered a flu pandemic between 1918 and 1920 that killed 50 million people that we know of. So in the midst of the seemingly unending suffering from all sides, Pope Benedict bankrupted the Vatican. Like, we often criticize the Vatican these days, right? That there's people suffering and hungry across the world, and you've got these billion-dollar gold and whatever in, in your temples. But this guy got his own cardinals mad at him, and they tried to kick him out of the popehood because he bankrupted the Vatican, trying to provide for every single orphan of war and flu. They had no more liquidity left. They were selling their artifacts in order to pay for these orphans to be fed and housed and taken care of. And it wasn't just for the Catholic children. That was very important to him, that this was not just for the Catholic children. This was for the Protestant children, for the atheist children, for the Jewish children, for the Muslim children. It didn't matter. To him, a child was a child. We are all children of God, according to Pope Benedict, loved by God, worthy of respect and honor. And this man, often called the forgotten pope, only served for eight years before he died of pneumonia. You can imagine he was a little bit overworked and overstressed. He died in 1922, just at the end of the war. But when I think about somebody like that who devoted their life to trying to bring a little bit more light into the darkest, one of the darkest times in human history, you know what I think the measure of a man like that is? 
is not the way that you are remembered by your biographer or by your friend or by your allies or by your family or by people who look and sound like you, but the way that the, your quote-unquote enemies remember you, the way that the other remembers you. So if any of you are ever find yourselves in Istanbul, uh, you should go to the town uh, somewhere in, in the middle of the city there is a statue of him erected right there in the middle of the city. And the epithet on that statue reads, the great pope of the world tragedy, the benefactor of all people, irrespective of nationality or religion. The Turks were on the enemies, by the way, from um, Italy and, and those that he said he represented. But they remembered him as the benefactor of all people, irrespective of nationality or religion. And I bring him up now to you because people like him are so often forgotten when we're retelling history. It's the generals and the presidents and the kings and prime ministers. It's the, the wealthy billionaires. It's the people who get their faces on television that history remembers, that we have to memorize in history class, that get talked about as the movers and the shakers in the midst of tragedy. But I always try to remember the words of St. Rogers, um, as he's known in my household. It's Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers. Um, that whenever there are frightening times on the television, to look for the helpers, because there are always helpers. It's hard to see them on television because they don't normally get a lot of screen time, but there are always helpers there. No matter what the world is going through, there are always helpers in the midst of it. There's always a small remnant of peoples trying to stem the tide of evil in their days. But there's something to remember about the helpers that I don't know if we talk about enough. And that's that while they are often remembered as saints, in their day, most of them were pretty widely disliked. <laughs> they were usually seen as troublemakers in their day. Pope Benedict XV was widely hated by his own people seen as somebody who was doing very illogical things with the treasures of the church. Um, but he understood that the treasures of the church were the people and not the gold. And I think about this story we read in the Gospels today of Jesus ascending the mountain with uh, his three best friends. And suddenly his appearance is changed in their eyes and they see up there two men Moses and Elijah, which I don't know how they knew it was them. Maybe they had name tags, uh, name tags, definitely name tags. But they, they saw Moses and Elijah and Jesus. And here you are. You have three of the most holy men who have ever lived in the history of the world. Moses is somebody who gave the law. He is the only person recorded in the scriptures who was allowed to see God. The Bible says that he talked with God like one talks with a friend. He went up that mountaintop to meet God and receive the commandments, and his face was glowing because he was in the presence of God so much he had to put on a veil. Elijah doesn't die <laughs> in his story. Uh, a chariot of fire comes personally 
to pick him up. God sends an Uber to pick him up and take him up to heaven personally because he is so dang holy. And Jesus, the literal son of God, all three of them up there right now, the paragons of holiness, of righteousness, of justice, of goodness, each and every one of them was hated in their time. The people regularly revolted against Moses. They tried to kick him out several times. His own siblings tried to usurp him because they didn't think he was doing the right thing. They didn't like the fact that uh, they didn't like his uh, interracial marriage. They didn't like the way that he uh, led things. They didn't like all kinds of things about him. The people revolted against him constantly. Elijah called down fire from heaven on, uh, in the face of the prophets of Baal and thought he might be heralded as a hero, but instead was hunted down by King Ahab to be killed. And we all know what happened to Jesus. I don't need to get into that. So I look at the helpers in our day as well. I think just about every single major city in the entire world has a street named after Dr. King. We have a bank holiday after the guy. He's lifted up as this American prophet that we can all get behind. But at the time of his death, 75% of people disapproved of him. 75% of people disapproved of him. A majority of people, um, as surveyed by Gallup, said that he got what he deserved. That he would still be alive if he, if, if he had just been a more peaceful person. Pope Benedict was roundly accused of being a spy and a traitor by just about every single person in his time. The helpers are here, friends. They are always here. There are always people standing in the crossfire willing to do what it takes to put out the fires, to bandage the wounds, and to bring an end to wars. But so often, like we see in the person of Jesus, those helpers are villainized by the powerful portrayed as troublemakers, dissenters, but history often remembers them differently. And I find great comfort in knowing that. And like I said, the prophet Elijah had this great moment calling down fire and bringing the rains back, thinking he might be heralded as a hero and maybe this might spur on some kind of revival in the land, but instead was hunted down by King Ahab. And he was hiding alone in a cave, crying to God, lamenting that he was the only one left in Israel, the only faithful person left in Israel. And just kill me now because I'm the last one. I know probably some folks in this room can relate to that sentiment. Because there have been times, and maybe even now, when you feel like the evil in this world is just too big. The violent powers have just taken over. There's too much money out there, too much power and influence that there is nothing that this little guy can do and I am the only one left. And you, like Elijah, might weep in the privacy of your own mind feeling that there is no one left to defend truth and peace anymore. But friends, God woke Elijah up in that cave and told him that there is a remnant in Israel that God has kept Aside, there is a remnant in Israel. There is always a remnant 
left. There is a remnant in the church, no matter how corrupt the church has been, no matter how much it has gotten in bed with power and politics and money and military and colonialism, there is always a remnant left in the church, a remnant that is often characterized as dangerous troublemakers, I may add. So friends, I am here to tell you that there will always be a remnant left committed to the work of Jesus, to driving out evil, to spreading peace, to bandaging the broken. There will always be helpers in the midst of chaos. And that is a truth that is supported not only by the witness of Scripture, but by history itself. There will always be a remnant of helpers. So now given this comforting truth, the only question that remains is this. Will you be one of them? Will you choose to cause trouble in the name of good? Will you be an agent of love in a time of hate? Will you help to heal the world in whatever way that God has put you to do so, whether or not that seems insignificant in the great scheme of things? Ask yourself today not what kind of citizen you want to be, but what kind of ancestor you would like to become. What will we bequeath to the children that are born today? So pray for strength, friends. Pray for guidance. And above all, let us pray for peace. Let us pray together now.